Welcome to the Podglomerate. I just remember he has, um, we have a picture of him holding these two great big fish that they'd gone out on a fishing trip out in Lake Erie. Um, and he's standing underneath the American flag holding these two big fish. And it's the consummate American kid picture. It's really funny. It's a nice, nice photograph. This is Status, the show about how immigration impacts people. If you missed last week's episode, you might head back and give it a listen. Or you can stick around here and I'll do my best to catch you up. This week, we're continuing the story of Jonathan, the man who inspired the creation of Status. This is part two, Family. The voice you heard at the beginning of the episode? Well, that's Jonathan's mom, Lori. And the voice you'll hear next? That's his dad, David. He's a good son. I know. Mom, dad. It feels like we've jumped ahead in the story a little bit. Don't worry, this is part two. You haven't missed anything. But you're probably thinking, what? Last time we left, Jonathan was at the foundation in Colombia waiting for the French woman to return to adopt him. And you'd be right. And thank you so much for the recap. But why didn't the French woman get the chance to adopt him? When she returned, where had he gone? Well, that's the story that Jonathan and his parents are going to tell you today. We'll kick things off before they were his parents, though in Dallas sometime around 1998. Jaime Jaramillo is the closest thing to a living saint I have ever met. He is, he's just an incredible human being. I went to a dinner in Dallas and sat next to a gentleman who was the president of an oil company that was doing business in Colombia. And I told him over the course of the dinner how we were trying to adopt from Colombia. He said, well, you have to talk to Jaime Jaramillo, and I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. So I said, sure, that, that'd be fine. And the next day at like 4.30 in the afternoon, I get this call, and it's this booming voice that said, this is Jaime Jaramillo. Lori and David spoke to Jaime who had a foundation outside of Bogota where he rescued and protected orphans and street children. We had been in touch with him as we were trying to adopt and had uh, run through uh, a private attorney in, uh, in Bogota. So we had f- uh, filed papers and, and were in the process. But it was a long, arduous, and at the time, fruitless process. It was just too many... Um, hurdles, it seemed. And I said, let's just try that, Jaime Jaramillo. We called Jaime, and he said, this must be the hand of God. And we said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm on my way to the U.S. Embassy to uh, get visas for these children. I'm bringing the three children up to Miami to interview for um, a show called Sabido Gigante. And he said, I'd love for you to meet them. We said, well, let's, let's, we'll talk about it. We'll get back with you. And we talked about it, and we said, well, maybe uh, we could just go as chaperones and just to help out while they're there. And so we called him back. We said, we'll go. And he um, said, well, there's one little boy I want you to meet particularly. I actually went to Florida because we got invited to uh, be part of this show, which in South America is called Sábado Gigante. And um, in 1998, in October 1998, they invited the orphanage um, or a couple of kids from the orphanage. They actually invited the owner of the orphanage to come and, like, you know, bring some kids to talk about the live stories. It took us two days to do all the paperwork. So it was just a very express um, thing to um, do all the paperwork and then come here and talk about my life story. So it was two days of, like, getting up at 5 a.m., doing paperwork all day, going to bed at 10 a.m., the next morning the same thing so it was a very long day because we had to ask permission from our biological fathers and he's um he still lives um they had to ask permission for him to allow me to come to the united states 
And so the first time I set eyes on Jonathan was when they landed in Miami and uh, got off the plane and came through uh, customs. And there was uh, Jaime with, uh, with four children, Jonathan being one. When they first got to the Miami airport, we were sitting in the bar in the lounge waiting for them of the hotel there in the airport because we didn't know which flight they were on. We had never gotten the messages to which flight they were on, so we just met all the flights coming from Bogota. And um, they came into the, into the bar area, and Jonathan had a backpack, and he was real little. And he turned around, and he knocked a drink off a little table. And the, my first reaction is like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't I didn't know any English at the time. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. Lo siento. Um, and then I started cleaning and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't have any money to give this guy another drink. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And so he was I was so impressed. He was so concerned and he was so sorry. And he he just dropped everything and tried to clean it all up and and apologized profusely and was very, very concerned about it. And I thought, well, that's a very good sign. The thing's like, Jaime, he has no concept of being on time. So what my parents and I talk about is the fact that he kind of like dropped these kids at the airport and went to get a card and stayed out for like three hours and then picked us up. Jaime said, okay, well, they'll stay with you. And, and Jaime left. I didn't know. I knew that there were those people there, and, like, I liked them, but I didn't know who they were. Um, there was not actually a formal introduction until later on. Mari and David went with Jaime and the children as they made their appearance on Sabado Gigante. And then they joined them on a mini-tour of a few other places in Florida. And uh, from there, we spent uh, uh, a number of days with them, Went up to, uh, uh, we went to Fort Lauderdale and uh, eventually ended up uh, at Disney World <laughs> and escorted uh, the children around. So we, they took us to Disney World. Um, they paid for everything. We didn't have to pay for anything. Uh, we got to go in front of everything and we got to like ride a bunch of rides and eat food and enjoy we actually stayed at one of the resorts so like breakfast just seeing those like trades and like things of like buffet with breakfast and like the fact that you could eat anything you wanted at any time it was really cool well uh of course all the interactions were uh on an animated level because no one uh jonathan couldn't speak uh, english we couldn't speak spanish but alberto had just come back from a year in France, and Alberto could speak French. So, well, I was born in South Louisiana. Um, my uh, my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and for generations uh, lived within an isolated uh, small area in South Louisiana that was uh, French, uh, French-speaking and French uh, descent. And so I grew up speaking French to my grandparents, it was a roundabout way of communicating. I would say something to Alberto, who would then translate. I would say in French. I would tell him something in French. Alberto would translate into Spanish. Jonathan and the others would uh, reply in Spanish to Alberto, and Alberto would reply back in French to me, and I would uh, tell Laurie in English what was going on. So it was like a four-way conversation, and I'm sure there was a lot that uh, I got lost in translation. But that was, uh, that was for days, that's how it went on. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it, it, it worked fine, and um, we were able to communicate uh, enough. I didn't know any English. The only thing I knew was like, yes, thank you, and okay. That's all I did. Um, and I, um, my very first sentence in English, and I think my mom will laugh when she hears this, is my very first sentence in English was, Alberto is a pig. I remember Jaime telling us that this couple um, that were 
with us were actually like you know just they have they wanted to kind of like foster one of us for a little bit Jaime had approached us about would you be interested in in taking care of Jonathan and having Jonathan come stay with you and we talked about it at length one night I'll never forget it was a very sleepless night Jaime came up to me and he sat me down and he's like hey um, you know this couple they like you um, they want to see if you want to stay with them for a couple of months and of course you know I'm not I'm not stupid by the time I was 13 I was three weeks before my 14th birthday um, I'd, I've learned not to say no to a good opportunity and so I said yes automatically like it, it like I don't think my brain kind of process that up I just said like yes and so we went dinner to Macaroni Grill. I remember really well in, in Boca Raton. And then we announced, or Jaime announced, that I was going to stay with them for some time. And so, like, they were really happy. On October 12th, 1998, we flew to Dallas. Me and my mom always celebrate that because I was my mom's birthday present. It was one of those like things that I always call on her birthday and I wish her a happy anniversary and wish her happy birthday. And it was just like, it's one of those things that we always have in our memories that October 12th, 1998, I was her birthday present. So it's, it's really cool having that with her. We got to the house, and as soon as I saw my room, I literally, like, pointed at myself, pointed at the room, and I'm like, this is for me, um, in sign language, because I didn't know, like, I'm not even sign language, I'm like, this room is for me, and they're like, if you want to, like, I didn't understand, and I'm like, bye, and I closed the door, and they laughed. Once I know my own room, I'm like, oh, my own bed, my own room, my own space, I don't have to share with anybody. Uh, the first couple of days was fun. It was more like me getting used to it. Um, I remember we had a lot of visitors because my mom tried to speak Spanish, but it was just like not communication at all. So we had a lot of people that spoke Spanish and like that came to the house and kind of like helped us with a little bit of communication and things like that. And um, after that, my dad bought me this little calculator. It looked like a small calculator, but it was a translator. And um, I started using that to do that. In the first couple of years, it was still um, hard conversationally to, to get beyond just simple day-to-day functional things. Uh, do you want to eat this? You want to, <laughs> what, uh, let's go buy some clothes. Let's, uh, you know, just simple things. But getting into more detailed conversation was, didn't occur. Till, till much later when he uh, became more fluent in, in English. Um, and of course there were, there were the uh, uh, normal uh, normal things that, that occur with, uh, in the teenage years. Uh. David says that he never really had to discipline Jonathan. But he does remember him going through a moody phase. Like that first Halloween when they tried to get him to hand out candy to trick-or-treaters and he didn't want to. For Halloween, it was two days after my birthday, and I was not, I was like, I was missing my family in Colombia already, right? It's like, I mean, I always celebrated with people. And I mean, it's not like always celebrated, it's more like, you know, I was around everybody at the orphanage and things like that, so like they always did a, like a celebration, and then when I was here, um, I remember really when my mom saw that I was a little bit unhappy, and she went out to Blockbuster. <laughs> um, she went out to Blockbuster and brought, bought me my very first movie, and uh, it was Richie Rich. <laughs> and it was it was such a cool movie. It's one of my favorite movies to this time. It's like, I mean, I know it's stupid and things like that, but it was really cool. It was really cool. During Thanksgiving, I remember really well, my mom was like, what would you like to eat? Um, and like all these is like being like sign language. It's like, like we did not know how to communicate very well. She spoke very slowly. 
I had to look at an English Spanish dictionary to see what she was saying. Use my little translator to um, do everything. And um, and I remember really well just like putting in the calculator rice. And so like during Thanksgiving, everybody was eating a wonderful meal and I was eating rice. In fact, I don't think I ate any of the food because it looked, it was foreign to me. It was weird. It was like something that I was not used to. It had no salt. And I'm like, no, this is gross. Um, and so like, I think my mom made me some rice and I just like poured some salt over it and I ate it. I remember my mom had a meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. When we got to Wyoming, it was the very first time that I ever saw snow. Oh my God, why is it so white? Why are the trees like really, like, you know, white and stuff like that? And my dad explained to me, like, you know, that's snow. Um, he tried his best with his, like, um, words and it was really sweet. And, um, and so we went to Wyoming and I, my, my dad's brother, my uncle Mo. And my Aunt Vicky actually just came and um, they actually flew all the way to Jackson, Wyoming to meet me. And I remember this a little because it's like, for me, I've always been a very warm person from like, even when I was younger and even when I was living in the streets and everything. It's like, my dad kind of like, like made signs that my Aunt Vicky was family. And so as soon as he like family, I'm like, oh, family, I love you. And I gave her a hug. And that's like my first word. So Aviki fell in love with me. Um, she's like one of the w most wonderful women that I've ever met in my life. And the fact that they took the time to come and like, you know, fly all the way to Jackson, Hole, Wyoming and spend time with me and meet me and like, you know, welcome me to the family. That was like a huge thing. Um, I didn't know at the time, but like, I mean, that was a huge thing. <laughs> one of the things I remember, he came to that same meeting. Um, it was out in Jackson Hole and he uh, he would go around and hug all the ladies and kiss them. And, of course, they all thought he was adorable, and they all fell all over him. And he couldn't speak English at all, but, you know, he didn't need to. And uh, somebody walked up to me and said, how do I get that job? I want that job where you go around and you hug all the ladies and get kisses from them. <laughs> I said, oh, no, that's a Jonathan job. You just, you can't, you can't, you have to be born into that one. We, I was leaving tips for the housekeeper, and I think there were two $10 bills left. And the, I went, right before we left, I went back into the room to just check and make sure I hadn't left anything, and one of the $10 bills was gone. And I said, Jonathan, what happened to the $10 bill? And he, he pointed to his room, and he went in, I went into his room, which was adjoining, and he had taken one of the $10 bills, and in his room he had written, thank you, and put the $10 bill in his room, just like we had written, thank you, with the $10 bill in our room. And I thought, that's another good sign, <laughs> you know, if this is the worst he does. <laughs> and uh, it was... It was touching, you know, it was very sweet. During Christmas, I remember like watching all these um, movies about, you know, like, oh, Santa Claus and the Christmas trees and things like that. And I remember really well, um, I baked cookies with my mom and we put milk and cookies on the table and I slept on the couch, like right next to the Christmas tree, just like, waiting to see Santa Claus. Uh, I know it wasn't real. I know it's like, you know, it's nothing, but it's like, for me, it was just like, it was, it was just like something that I wanted to do. I've never like had the family to do it. So it was just like, I don't really seem very natural. Um, and it was new to me. So um, I remember waking up to like having $80 on like, you know, Santa left $80 on my, on, on the cookies that he ate. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm rich. Immediately after he came to Dallas, Jonathan told Lori and David that he wanted to go to school. They were impressed, so they worked with a lawyer in D.C. so that they could enroll him in a public school. Oh my god. School was really tough. Not because of the fact that I was 
like young is just the fact that when I was in when, when I was in Colombia, I was about to go into the eleventh grade. So even before my fourteenth birthday, I was you know I was about to go into eleventh grade. I think it was ten or eleventh grade. I honestly don't. Remember. It was it was eleventh grade. And coming here, um, they put me back in eighth grade, which like for me was ridiculous, and I felt stupid. Um, I felt like they were like degrading my intelligence in some way, just because it's like you know, I mean, I was. 13, I was in 10th grade, and then I was going to be in 11th grade and graduate from high school when I was 14, and coming here to the United States, they put me back in 8th, like, for the first six months, they put me back in, like, um, 8th grade, and then I went to high school, and for me, it was just, like, it was weird, but at the same time, it's like, as I grew a little bit older, and I understood the language, and I learned everything, I knew why my parents did it, um, just because, like, having a kid who is 14 years old foreign to a country in 11th grade is... I mean, they knew that I wasn't going to have the childhood that I needed. And they knew that I wasn't going to have, like, the opportunities that I had while I was in high school. When Jonathan finished his eighth grade year, Lori and David looked for a private school to put him in that would sponsor a student visa for him. Right after they'd brought him home, they'd extended his visitor's visa. But if he was going to stay any longer, he'd need to be sponsored by a school. Luckily, they found a school that was willing to do so. But he needed to take the entrance exam first. And they, they were very nice, and they said, certainly we'll entertain, you know, his application. And so they sat him down to do the test, and of course he didn't speak any English. And the lady who was the vice chancellor, I guess, of the school said, well, it's okay, you don't have to. And Jonathan would not give up. He said, no, no, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to, you know, he indicated he was going to finish it. And uh, he just worked and worked and worked and worked on it. And I think that impressed them as much as anything, you know, because he wouldn't give up and he, he uh, worked so hard. It was doubly hard for him. Um, the language uh, situation, because by the time he got to high school, he had only been speaking English for a year uh, two years at the most, and it really takes seven to ten years before you you, you can achieve fluency both uh, in in spoken la- spoken language and in uh, reading and writing. So, the fact that he he did well in in school and he in a school that was a uh, uh, a very good academically challenging school. It was a private school that, uh, a small private school that pride themselves on, uh, on their academic uh, excellence. And uh, they did not cut Jonathan much slack. I think in the first year or so they were understanding and they were helpful and they, uh, uh, and we had tutoring uh, for him. But very shortly after that, it was sink or swim. He, uh, he had to do and, and to achieve, and, and he did. And we were very, very proud of that. I was impressed that he wanted to try football and, and baseball, knowing that he didn't really uh, know much about the game, that he just simply wanted to, to, be, to participate, to be part. And uh, I, I think it, was, it went a lot with just simply being uh, wanting, this was an American thing, and he wanted to try it out. Golf and tennis, on the other hand, um, he was more natural at. And I grabbed the golf club and I hit it in like my second try and he was just like very impressed because the ball went pretty hard and I had kind of like a natural swing. And so like we just started, like he taught me everything I know about golf in a couple of days. And then after that, I started beating him. It was really fun. And in no time whatsoever, he he surpassed me in, uh, in every aspect of the game. We sent him. So when I saw that he had that kind of talent, natural talent, he had a beautiful natural, does still have a beautiful natural swing, um, I told Laurie that, uh, well, we've got to send him to the golf camp. He has to. He has to learn <laughs> from uh, from people who know how to teach the game, not from me. Um, so we did, and, and uh, he became very good very quickly at the game. And uh, we've had a lot of enjoyable uh, 
time together on the course. And, and it was both to teach him the game and to spend time with him because you know, a typical golf game can last four hours, four plus hours. Um, and you've got him sort of a captive audience. You know, you're sitting together, uh, walking together um, for a long period of time. So it's conducive to conversation. Uh, tennis as well. He uh, he took to tennis very easily, very quickly, and it was uh, something he liked. So um, I was never that good at tennis. So again, he surpassed me immediately, and um, we uh, engaged someone to give him lessons at uh, at, at, at the uh, tennis courts, uh, municipal courts, uh, not far from the house, and uh, we take him after school. Uh, it wasn't every day, but it was uh, a number of days a, a, a week for uh, a couple of years. I was sitting on the couch and I was reading The Once and Future King. And I didn't understand it. <laughs> I didn't know any English. So it was like my freshman year of high school. And I remember we were like, we were in the couch and I just like, I didn't understand anything. And I just started crying. And I like, I, was, I felt lonely once again. And like my mom was trying to read to me. And it was one of those things that it just like, I just felt alone. I didn't feel like I didn't understand anything, even though I've had like made progress in like my language learning and everything. And like, I felt like I was at zero. Like, I remember getting really angry, not in a very aggressive way. It was just like, I I just felt utterly alone. I felt like I was in an empty room where it was just me forever. I still miss my brothers and sisters in Colombia. You know, I was relatively new here. Um, it was a year where, like, I had not spoken to anybody of my family. I haven't. And I told my parents, it's like, you know, I I, I want to stay here, but I can't stay here because I miss my family. Um, I cried that night. I didn't, I didn't sleep that night. I'm pretty sure my parents didn't sleep either. Jonathan, I think, felt very guilty um, initially because he was from a family um, that had been totally fractured and the children were in different, he was the youngest and the children were in different situations, but virtually all of them were very difficult. And I think he felt guilty about why am I here with all this when they're, they're struggling. There was one point where he, um, I believe he was, I believe he felt very guilty for being with us while they were still having difficulties and living in difficulties in, in, in Colombia. And he told us he was going to go back, and we said, okay. And my husband said, well, we'll pay for your education in Colombia. And, uh, you know, we don't want you to go, but we certainly understand if you feel you need to go. Um, and so, like, I kind of, like, lay in bed. And this is a 14-year-old kid, right? I mean, I lay in bed, and I was just like, what is going to happen to me if I go to Colombia? I will probably never finish high school. I'll probably end up in the streets. I knew that I, like, I mean, I was a grown-up even, like, when I was seven years old, right? Because of the decisions that I've always had to make in my life. But that was one of the first nights that I'm like, these are life-changing decisions. Um, whatever I choose, it's going to, like, set forth the path for my future. My parents bought a ticket for me to go back to Colombia, and like they told me that they will pay for my school and everything like that. But I knew that if I was gonna go there, all the influences that I had and everything like that, I will probably never finish high school. Like it's just that's just the reality of it. And I remember waking up that day and like thinking, like you know, what do I say? I didn't even wanted to face them, and they didn't sleep that night. They called into work. Um, they they call into work saying that they you know they were not gonna come in. We sat down and we actually started talking about like, you know, like I told him like if they allow me to stay here, I would love to stay. 
just because I wanted a chance to kind of like get an education. I mean, it's not every day that somebody out of the blue just like opens the doors for you and wants to like give you like their love and like everything they have to offer and we all cried we all like you know it was one of those moments that i actually felt like i was part of a family that i was with the right people i was with the right mom and dad i was with um i i felt loved um for like the very first time in my life like i felt that i had two people that it didn't matter like anything that i've done before i felt that they like they were fully invested in wanting to give me a life or wanting to give me an opportunity for me to be something for me to be like you know something far more than what i could have been if you had have not come here did they try and talk you out of going? Not at all. Um, for them, they were like so invested or on on seeing me happy because of everything that I went through in my life, like um, all the abuse and like you know physical and mental and like all these things that I had been through. They were like so supportive from the very beginning, and they were always wanted to like see the best um in me and they wanted to kind of like love me when like you know i'm not i wasn't even their kid and like and i like all this love that they came from them it was just like i don't know i mean they were they were sent from some place out of this planet just like it was just it was one of those times i'm like I don't know. It's just like I just felt truly loved by people, like that they actually wanted me, and I actually was wanted to be part of something. Now, throughout this episode, Jonathan has been referring to Lori and David as mom and dad. That's pretty understandable, but those weren't the words that he used right away. And when he first met them, he called them by their names. Because that's who they were to him when he first met them and moved in with them. I think we were home, but it's like I looked at my dad and I'm like, do you care if I called you dad? And I think he started crying. I don't know. Like when my when my dad talks about it, I don't know if he's going to say that or not. But I think he started crying. And then when I when he told mom and I told mom, like, can I call you mom? I think they're both starting crying and they're like, yes, of course. It's like, I started crying. They started crying. Everybody started crying. Uh, and, um, it was one of those like bittersweet moments when like, I knew for a fact that I had a mom and a dad. Um, it took about 16 years of my life and I finally knew that I had a mom and a dad that I had, a dad that will stand up for me and a dad that will, you know, that even though in the very short amount of time that I've been with him, I had his unconditional love. And I knew that my dad will do anything for me. And I knew that my dad was gonna like, he, he, he will protect me. And I knew that. And that's why I made the decision of calling him dad. And that's why I made the decision of calling her mom, because I knew that everything they did what's for a benefit for me so that I can have a good life so that I don't have to like go through the same things that I went through when I was younger I never had I I, I, I mean I was uh, I was very happy that he felt that that was that that was a designation he wanted me to be that uh, I wasn't just uh, I wasn't just his guardian. That that it went beyond that. It went uh, a step further. That uh, well, <laughs> a big step further. That in his heart, in his mind, uh, in his being, he considered me his father, um, having not been a father before, and having wanting to be a father. It was a big moment for for me as well. After that, like a couple of months 
pass. And I remember calling the orphanage to see if they could find the phone number for my sister. And this is something that I had to do. So they found a number for my sister and I started communicating with them. And then after a while, I even like surprised them because I told them that I wanted to talk to my biological father. And they were like, why? Um, and for me, it was very important to talk to him, to thank him for bringing me into this world. But because of all the um, mental and physical abuse that I've had in my life, that's all I had to thank you for. Like, thank you for bringing me into this world. Um, I have a dad that loves me. I have a mom that loves me. And this is like where it ends. And I know that some people might feel like, oh, but you know, like he's your biological dad. But I'm like, no, like for me, he's just like any other person in the world. Um, he's not my dad. He brought me into this world. Um, and that's it. And when I talked to him, for me, it was, it was very difficult because I remember really well just like getting on the phone and calling him by his name. And I'm like, thank you for bringing me into this world. I don't understand why a man who had seven children whose wife died and I was one years old when she died so it's like and like for me it was just like I don't understand why a man who has seven children decided to choose alcohol and drugs instead of like raising his own children and I asked him that you know and like I'm like I was just like why do we have to go through these steps for us to be able to like find realization of like who truly loves us. Um, like once I talked to him, it was just like I was at at peace. It was just like one of those like lift things that came out of my my shoulders. My dad was there with me, so my dad just like you know just gave me a hug and I explained to my dad exactly what I said to um, that other gentleman. And that's it. I mean, for me, he's always kind of like been kind of like a ghost now um and that's it i mean i don't i don't owe him anything i don't owe him absolutely anything did he say anything his words i think his words were like i allowed you to go there i thought we were fine I do, however, remember um, my sister just like getting on the phone and she told me that he had started crying, um, that he didn't know what he did wrong. And I was just like, I wasn't going to like store the pot there. She knew, she knew exactly that, you know, what he did wrong and everything like that. Adoption was, was much more difficult. It would have required all of us going back to Colombia, staying an extended period of time, and getting approvals from a number of, uh, of people, including uh, his, Jonathan's, um, uh, biological father, which would have proved difficult, more than difficult. <laughs> Despite the impossibility of adoption, Jonathan had found a family. And at the moment, his F-1 student visa meant that he could stay in school in Dallas. So he continued high school, and he and his parents kept living their lives together. And things were about to get quite interesting. We've arrived at the part of the story that I didn't believe the first time Jonathan told me about it. I did a lot of community service when I was with when I was in my high school, and one of the companies that like one of the companies, no, one of the organizations that we did community service with was with um, UNICEF. Some 
representative came to our school looking for a Latin American looking dude um, that could represent the Americas. Well, that was a very strange occurrence. His guidance counselor was friends with someone who worked at the Olympic Committee. And apparently they decided to have uh, UNICEF bring together children from the world to carry the flag out. They had a number of Lech Valenza, Valenza and um, I want to say Bishop Tutu and others carried the flag in, the Olympic flag in at the opening ceremonies. And then they had these children from around the world representing different continents carry the flag out. I remember my principal um, talking to his office and he's like, hey, you've been selected to carry the Olympic flag at the closing ceremonies of the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics. I couldn't tell anybody. Um, I couldn't tell my family members, the only ones that knew were my mom and my dad and our principal at school. Nobody else. Um, for security purposes. It was immediately after 9-11. So security throughout the country and, and of course, with the Olympics coming up in Salt Lake, uh, security was a major concern. So th we were told that we couldn't tell people that we were going to the Olympics and that Jonathan would be a part of the Olympic ceremony uh, simply because uh, for for security reasons, you never knew if someone could take advantage of that situation and and uh, and, and and use our travel to the Olympics uh, for any sort of security. Uh, uh, to breach security there, so we could we couldn't tell our families until after it had, it, it had happened, basically, or we could just say simply that we were we were going to be there. And uh, uh, but we told people just watch the Olympics; you may be surprised. And and uh, and, and not many of them actually got it. Saw that uh, that that Jonathan was participating, and of course we told everyone afterwards. But um, it was exciting for us, absolutely, and, and uh, we were there. We we uh, were, uh, uh, were were well taken care of by the Olympic Committee, uh, put up in hotels and uh, and given uh, tickets to uh, some of the the best venues. Certainly, uh, specifically like the downhill, which I, I very much enjoyed, and uh, we had a prime. Uh, uh, box location to watch the uh, closing ceremony, and and of course Jonathan, when Jonathan and the other children carried the flag out, it was a uh, quite a moment. <laughs> we were very, very thrilled, very proud, very uh, very excited for him and 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 for us. It was it was quite a quite an achievement. But it was just like it was really nice to see like what other kids were doing around the world and what impact they were creating. And it was nice, like, spending a whole week with them and, like, you know, just, like, meeting all these famous people. Like, we met Sync and we met a Kiss. And and he really enjoyed being with the other children from around the world. I remember there was a girl from Australia, or there was a girl from Ireland, I believe, and a, a boy, I believe, from Australia. Um, but they were from all over the world. And it was very, very interesting. Well, the in our mind, the idea of coming to live with us to learn English for a year was was never. Uh, it was more than that. I mean, it was even from the very beginning. We knew it was more than that. If if he was coming home, he was coming home. It wasn't. Uh, a matter of after a year, or we're gonna kick him out and send him back. No, it, we had been looking to adopt. We were uh, in the process, and, and so in our in our minds, uh, this was this was more permanent. And then when he turned 18, 
he could sign his own papers. So we did try, but um, my biological father, uh, they couldn't find him or he didn't sign the paperwork for the adoption. So um, we just waited for me to turn 18. And then we went down to a courthouse in Houston and the courthouse in Houston allowed us to um, get my parents, like, you know, the option to adopt me. And I remember really well because we were standing in front of the judge and the judge like just straight up asked him the question is like, you do know that he's 18 years old. You do know that he's an adult. Do you still want to go through this? And my mom just like straight up crying. She said like, of course we do. Yes, we do. And my dad, the same thing. And so it was like, that's what made it official. The judge gave us the... Once I was 18, I was able to sign my own papers and they adopted me officially. And so we adopted him to formalize him into our family, but it didn't, again, it didn't make him, uh, didn't give him citizenship or, or a green card. Um, but it was, it was a process we, we wanted to do, all of us wanted to do. Oh, yeah, there were, you know, there were a lot of growing pains, but um, in the end, it was amazing. You know, I I still, to this day, almost 20 years later, drive down the street and I think to myself, there's no way that should have worked out, you know. Logically, rationally, it shouldn't have worked out. With just the language alone, it shouldn't have worked out, the challenges, but... Um, it worked out very well. And I think Jaime was right. It was the hand of God, you know. Ours has been an unconventional situation. But it's no less a, uh, it's no less a, a, a family situation. We, we, we early on wanted to formalize our relationship and, and formalize it in, in a family setting. And, and, and so the adoption was very important to all of us. It was something we, we wanted to do and, and had to do. Um, never any hesitation about that. Um, and as I say, again, it, you know, it was a process by which it didn't make him didn't change his legal status in the U.S. in any in any fashion, but it was very important to all of us and very gratifying that we could do that for ourselves. And so, yes, legally, he is is our son, and that was important to us. I, when I you know, legally, in the sense, it didn't make him uh, a citizen, didn't help in his immigration, but it legalized our relationship and that was always something that uh, was paramount to us Um, other than to say that I've always been a very proud father Uh, he's always been a very good and loving son Um, we're uh, I, I also was very grateful in the way he interacted with with both my family and Laurie's family. He and the cousins, as he, he calls them, are close, and they, they genuinely like and, uh, and love each other. And, uh, and even though, like all modern families, everyone is far apart <laughs> from each other, they still remain in touch and they and when they are together on those occasions rare occasions you can tell that there's genuine affection and there's there's acknowledgement and so we're very gratified for that very much happy that that's that's part of uh of all of the uh, the family relationships that we have so yeah he's a good son
Status is produced by me, Matt Orton. Music for this episode was provided by Breakmaster Cylinder. Check out all the other Podglomerate shows wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll be back with part three of Jonathan's story next time. I'll talk to you then.